Let's turn for our scripture reading to Zechariah chapter 10. We'll read through the chapter, which is our text this morning. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wend their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them as his royal horse in the battle. From him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside. For I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. Those of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as with if with wine. Yes, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them, for I will redeem them. And they shall increase as they once increased. I will sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live together with their children, and they shall return. I will also bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no more room is found for them. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the river shall dry up. Then the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. So I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I've mentioned it often in the course of our uh, study of this book, that restoration and hope are the big themes of this prophecy of Zechariah, a prophecy to those who had been restored from captivity in Babylon. And uh, with the emphasis upon these themes throughout this prophecy, we do have repetition. And you may have noticed that in uh, our reading of this chapter this morning. I noticed it myself as I read this passage and... Uh, thought, wow, there appears to be nothing especially new in this chapter that we that we haven't already considered, at least in some form, and how do I bring something fresh uh, from this passage? But we remember that if there is repetition in God's Word, line upon line, precept upon precept, well, God's people must have really needed such repetition if we consider the situation uh, which Zechariah addressed in that uh, historical context, they needed such encouragement. They needed to hear God's promises repeated again and again and in different forms. 
And the Holy Spirit ensured that the Lord's promises were, were pounded into their hearts and minds. And that's actually what we need as well. Because the fact is, uh, we are often forgetful hearers, and we are often uh, full of doubts, and we face many fears, and very often our problems are repeated in our minds over and over again, uh, relentlessly, uh, with a, a kind of futile and harmful self-talk that we often indulge in. And we may be saying to ourselves on occasion things like, my life is really a mess. My relationships are broken. My family is in trouble. In fact, my future seems to be rather bleak. And I feel kind of hopeless. And I'm rather pessimistic about a change in my circumstances. I'm pessimistic about a change in the people that uh, make my life miserable. I'm pessimistic about change in my own life. Well, according to the God's Word, we need promises. We need promises, promises, promises. We need to hear them. We need to believe them. We need to remember them. We need to repeat them to ourselves over and over again. We need to pray them. The Lord promises more of His grace here in this passage. More of His grace and power to restore, to bless. And we consider, first of all, that these promises are given in contrast to every other help. Ask the Lord, uh, the chapter begins. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. This is basically a repetition of God's promise of blessing to His people who trust in Him. You can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and read those promises of God's covenant faithfulness and mercy. And so often they re, they involve such assurances. But again, we must understand that this is not simply a promise of food. It is that. It's not simply a promise of, of outward blessing and prosperity, but rather the point of, of this particular promise when we remember its context. This basically is a promise of God in which He in effect says that every good thing to meet your real needs and to experience God's blessing are yours as you trust in Him. Trust in the Lord and trust in the Lord alone. You have not, James says, remember, because you ask not. Or you ask and you have not because you ask amiss. In other words, you ask uh, because you're driven by selfish uh, motivations and concerns, you ask him this, that you might consume it upon your own desires. And uh, that's why the Lord in His uh, exhortation to trust in Him, to rely upon His Word, combines that with a warning against idolatry. A warning against placing your trust in other other things. Forsake every idol, the Lord says. Now, this is a word to those who had been uh, brought back from captivity 
a captivity that God's people suffered largely because they turned away from Him and trusted in false gods. But now as those who have been restored, they still need to be warned against this. They need to be warned against against placing their trust in anyone or anything beside the living God. It's been said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. And what that basically means is that we trend toward things or teachings that are not from God. In fact, if you notice uh, in verse 2, the reference to idols is combined with falsehood, with the deceits and lies that characterize the false gods of this world. The idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They, they comfort in vain. And the result of following idols, falsehoods, is terrible confusion, leaving people as, as sheep uh, without a shepherd or with shepherds, or we might, and we must say, certainly in our day, or shepherdesses who lead them astray, who speak falsehood, who provoke God's judgment. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds. Israel's downfall and the subsequent captivity is traceable to their idolatry, and secondly, it is traceable to the false shepherds or the false prophets, that is, the false leaders among God's people who didn't call them out for it, who didn't do what God says when He said, lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their sin. The message of the false prophets then, as it is largely today, is one of peace, peace. As if one could add drunkenness to thirst. As if one's life could be characterized by sin. And yet everything's fine with God. That was the message of the false prophets. And God spoke again repeatedly of judgment against them. In Isaiah 56, we read, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. That's what uh, watchdogs ought to do. They ought to bark when danger approaches. And that's what watchmen over the house of God ought to do. They ought to raise a racket. They ought to bark, so to speak. Of course, not literally, but it means that they ought to address sin and unfaithfulness in love. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain. And our text reveals God's judgment and wrath against those false shepherds. We're reminded here, brothers and sisters, even in this combination of of thoughts that uh, real trust in God. It always has a negative side. 
And that means that we must, if we're going to trust in God, we must reject alternatives. And that means that we are to have a profound distrust of ourselves, beginning with ourselves. We are to have a profound distrust of our own self in terms of our own wisdom, in terms of our own abilities. We are to have a profound distrust in man, in man's wisdom, in man's philosophies, in man's teachings. Do you ever read books or do you ever access YouTube channels perhaps that uh, are aimed at addressing things like relationships in the family, marriage, on the job, or address things like self-improvement, or address things like tackling your your personal uh, problems, and on and on and on we could go, because there are endless resources that are devoted to these subjects. And do you read and do you access such resources that really have nothing to say about your relationship to God? Do you look for help to such sources who, which would never suggest that at the heart of so many of our problems in all these areas involves sin? Yes, sin. Not personality disorders with newfangled names that have been invented in the last few decades. Not psychological problems. Oh, indeed. There is a place for recognizing personalities, his personality disorders or psychological problems. I'm not dismissing that. But what do people rely on? What do they resort to nowadays by and large? There are resources that address all these problems that I mentioned in terms of psychology, in terms of worldly wisdom that do not communicate a reliance upon God, upon his word, that do not take into account the reality of sin and its consequences in our relationships and our personal problems. Would you trust in such resources? Would you rely upon them? Would you expect real, lasting help from them? Why? Because these books come with a pretty cover? Because they're a bestseller? Because it's a YouTube channel with thousands of likes and thousands of subscribers? Brothers and sisters, we need to beware of the contrast between trusting in God and trusting in man, in human wisdom. There's no real help. There's no real restoration. There's no real hope apart from God. And the way God assesses our problems and the solutions that God prescribes for our problems. Are we convinced of that? They comfort in vain. We read in verse 2b. Oh, they may offer a quick fix. They may even make things better. In a certain extent. But without getting to the bottom of issues. They cannot 
answer the soul's real need. They cannot provide consolation for life and death. How could they without Christ? Seriously, how could we expect help for life's real, practical... You know, that's the way sometimes people talk about about their justification for resorting to these lying idols. Says, oh yes, we need God, but we need help for our practical problems, our real life problems. As if the Word of God really doesn't touch those kinds of things. Do we really expect help from our practical, day-to-day life problems without Christ? in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it's because of that that the Word of God says to us, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Do you see the contrast? It's either according to Christ or it's according to the basic principles of this world. It's according to the traditions of men, whether they're old or new. Without Christ, that's the alternative. Without wisdom that is grounded in the gospel, do not expect expect help or you're resorting to idols. This matter of trusting in God alone is not some religious theory. It's a matter of the practical reliance of our souls and the resources that we access to deal with our very real complicated problems. Oh, we need to be convinced of that. We need to hear what the Word of God says to us about that. These promises of more grace and power to restore and bless are in contrast to every other help. And then secondly, they are promises of great consolation. Promises in contrast to every other help. Promises promises that are rich and wonderful. Promises of what the Lord will do. I will, I will. Twelve times in verses 6 through 12, we have this repetition of what the Lord will do. I will strengthen them twice. I will save them. I will bring them back. I will hear them. I will whistle for them. That's a way of expressing the fact that he will call them. I will redeem them. I will sow them. We'll look at the significance of that. I will bring them back again. I will gather them. Similar thought. I will bring them into the land. I will strengthen them again. Such a foundational promise. I will strengthen you, help you, cause you to stand upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. Promises of what the Lord will do. Every one of those promises is worthy of a focused attention and a sermon all on its own. Promises of what God will do. Promises of tremendous results. 
That means promises of what God's people will experience and what God's people will do in response to God's work. Things like, you will be as though I had not cast you off. And there it's uh, in reference particularly to a kind of reunion and restoration of, of wholeness and unity with respect to broken relationships that go as far back and are as deep as the, as the schism that, that took place among God's people under Jeroboam when ten tribes separated from the tribes of Judah and lived apart in division. And God speaks of a unity that he's going to bring about, a spiritual unity among people. Their children will see it and be glad. Promises that extend to the next generation. They will be like mighty men. Promises of, of strength and vigor. Their hearts will rejoice as with wine to indicate the exuberance of happiness, although not artificially induced. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Promises of rejoicing in the Lord. Promises of increase. Promise that God's people will remember Him. Promises that they will live spiritually. That means in reconciliation with God. They will live with their children. They will return. They will walk up and down in the Lord's name. Again, these are many descriptions of God's restoring grace and power. Each of them worth separate attention. We'll uh, give some attention to them in broad terms. And we need to appreciate that these indeed are promises for our consolation today. In the year of our Lord, 2022, these uh, promises that were spoken so many centuries ago to God's people there in Palestine, these promises are not just for the Jews. They're not just for the Jews of Zechariah's day. And they're not just for the Jews for some future day. You know, that's how some uh, interpreters will will look at these promises, especially the promises of of gathering them and and restoring them. And they think in terms of being restored to the land of Palestine. Well, you know, that had already occurred in terms of God bringing back the captivity of his people from Babylon uh, to uh, uh, the, the land of promise. And uh, yes, there were there were others that came from uh, Assyria, other other places, and uh, it's it's likely also, or it is also true that many thousands of Jews returned uh, to the land of promise, even centuries later, returned from the land of Egypt, under Ptolemy, from Assyria, and more importantly, there were many thousands that were gathered to Christ on the day of Pentecost. And many of these were Jews that were dispersed abroad that had gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And they, they came there and thousands of them were converted and they went back to their homes. They were dispersed. They were sown throughout the lands. And yes, 
God has not cast off his people. God will yet continue to gather his people from among the literal descendants of Abraham down through the centuries until the Lord Jesus returns. We know that that is also assured to us in the New Testament. But that's not the extent of the fulfillment of these promises. Yes, indeed, many Jews, even those dispersed through the Roman Empire, would would hear the gospel as it was proclaimed to them. And believing, they would rejoice with joy unexpressible and full of glory, as Peter describes the, the conversion of those among the dispersion. Jews and Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire being gathered to Christ. You see, there's no, there's no reason to get excited about people returning to a plot of land somewhere in the world if it doesn't involve gathering to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's gathering to Christ that is the fulfillment of these promises. Yes, it's, it's expressed in language. It's expressed in categories that were understandable in that context in which the mystery of the gospel had not yet been revealed. That mystery that has been hidden for ages, but has now been proclaimed through the prophets and apostles sent from God. That, that, uh, that the apostle Paul speaks of in, in Ephesians chapter one, where he says of this, this mystery that has been revealed which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, that is, they should they should uh, inherit all the promises, fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And that involves God's great gathering work. As he described in chapter 1, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. The fulfillment of that promise that's described in the second chapter of this same epistle, where it speaks of Christ who is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, who is gathering one church so that he could speak to Gentiles, non-Jewish people who are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. They have a heavenly citizenship together. That's not ethnic. It's not local having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So these promises of gathering, of unity, of restoration... They're fulfilled in Christ. That's the ultimate fulfillment. There's nothing bigger and better than that. And these promises and their rich fulfillment in Christ are indeed assured in Christ. 
And that is given prominence in this passage of promises, promises, promises. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great shepherd. The early part of this chapter talks about the sad condition of people who wend their way like sheep who are in trouble because they are without a shepherd. Remember how Jesus quotes this passage as he looks upon the Jews, had compassion upon them as sheep without a shepherd, even though they had shepherds who were false shepherds against whom the wrath of the Lord was kindled. But the Lord says, I will visit you. The Lord of hosts will visit his flock. And that ultimately is in the coming of the great shepherd. And Christ is described in this passage in, in four ways. In verse 4, where it says, From him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. But to start with, even before we look at these specific descriptions, we have to see the origin of this one of whom the prophet speaks. From him, from him, four times it's repeated. Remember what First Corinthians uh, says of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we read in chapter 1, of him, that is of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Everything in Christ, all from God, who has made us all these things. He is the Christ of God. He is of the seed of David according to the flesh, who is himself God over all, blessed forever. And all the promises are yes and amen in him. And that means, brothers and sisters, that there is no promise of Scripture that can be properly understood or properly believed apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's in Him that they are all assured and confirmed. And He is great. He is great in His grace. He is great in His power. He is the cornerstone, we read. He is the one who gives stability and unity to his people. We just read that uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted and joined together. Christ gives stability. Christ gives unity to his church. He is the tent peg. Well, that's kind of a strange comparison. We might think immediately of a of a peg that would hold a tent in the ground, a stake that would keep it grounded. It's possible, but more likely, this is a, a prophecy that is uh, to be understood in the light of another prophecy concerning Christ, where this idea of a, of a tent peg or a stake is given a different meaning. In Isaiah 22, we read, uh, of Christ. Well, it's, it's in the context, it's a reference to Eliakim, but it's a, a, a typological reference. It's fulfilled in Christ. That's obvious from the language. The prophet says, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut. That's quoted in the New Testament with respect to Jesus. 
and he shall shut, and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and cut down and fall. That's a reference to his death. But this peg will be established, and upon it will hang all the house of Israel. And again, that's, that's figurative language to speak of the fact that upon Christ hangs the weight of every soul whom he redeems with all our needs, with all our sins. He bears the weight of it all. He bears the weight of the world upon His shoulders. He is the Almighty God, the everlasting Father. And the government is upon His shoulders. In His ruling power, He's head over all things for the church. He is the battle bow. Think of Revelation chapter uh, 6, which uh, speaks of the opening of uh, this seal. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. That's figurative imagery of the Lord Jesus Christ riding forth, as it were, the power of the gospel, subduing people's hearts and lives to him. He is able, and he will overcome every enemy. He is the ruler, the ultimate ruler, the despot is the language that this passage uses, indicating that he has absolute power of all rulers. And this is the one who strengthens his people. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He is the one who secures the church's victory. Yes, this passage also uses figurative language to describe that victory. I will make them as his royal horse in the battle. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. One commentator on this passage says this, Though the church is fighting under the cross, she yet triumphs over all the wicked, partly by hope and partly by present success. For God wonderfully sustains it and makes the faithful to possess their souls in patience. And he also protects them by his own power and renders them safe amidst all the roarings and insatiable rage of their enemies. Since then, God thus strengthens the minds of his people and cherishes in them the hope of salvation and also defends them against raging assaults. It is no wonder that the prophet testifies that the church would be victorious, treading down as a giant or a strong man her enemies in the mire. He gives the reason for Jehovah will be with them. And this he said that they might know that nothing in this case would be their own, but that they might, on the contrary, learn to depend on God's aid alone. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Amen.